Hello, and welcome to Whistleblowing Now and Then, the podcast where I, Anna Myers, and my co-host, Vigilenza Abassi, hi, Vigilenza. Hi, Anna. Tackle the most important issues of the day for whistleblowing. Today's episode is Vigilenza's interview with Tom Devine, the legal director at the Government Accountability Project, otherwise known as GAP. I've known Tom for over 20 years. He has over 40 years worth of legal expertise and experience assisting whistleblowers on the front line. So I was very excited to listen to your interview with him, Vigilenza. Yes, I was so excited to sit down with Tom a few weeks ago and discuss his work at GAP, the issues raised by the pandemic, and of course, the EU whistleblowing directive. It is truly a very rich interview and Tom has so much knowledge to share. Yes, I think we've probably only touched the surface, but without any further ado, here's Vigilenza and Tom. Hi, Tom. What a fantastic pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, We really appreciate your time. We fully know how uh, busy right now the Government Accountability Project is with so much work on COVID-19. So for the record, for our listeners, uh, could you please uh, let us know who you are and what your organization does? Oh, sure. I'm the legal director of the Government Accountability Project. uh, my partner, Lewis Clark, our executive director, and I have been um, uh, sharing the, the work at GAP since January 1979. We've worked with about 8,000 whistleblowers uh, during that time, uh, formally or informally. Um, we help whistleblowers in a few ways. We defend them against retaliation. We open up investigations to um, follow through uh, on their concerns and help them make a difference. Uh, uh, and we're fighting all the time to get stronger free speech rights um, through legislative advocacy and participating in coalitions like Whistleblower International Network or our U.S. version, the Make It Safe Coalition. And then we, we share our lessons learned. Um, we um, run a, a law school clinic, and we usually have about um, 12 to 20 students who are um, learning whistleblower law and working on the cases with us. Um, we put out books um, and, and, and participate in programs like your podcast, Vigilanka. Yeah, so I, I would say that there's actually almost nothing that you do not do when it comes to whistleblowing, because of course you cover everything from uh, legal counsel to whistleblowers to advocacy work to teaching to advancing research to advancing international standards, as you've also recently done with uh, the United Nations and, and and of course helping other organizations around the world to foster their work and, and their capacities for whistleblowing. So uh, I cannot uh, uh, emphasize enough what a fantastic pleasure and unique privilege it is to have you with us today. And I do think that Government Accountability Project and your name are surely uh, very familiar to all our listeners who uh, know a thing or two about whistleblowing. So what has changed since obviously your experience is tremendous in this field? What would you say, Tom, has changed since COVID-19? I don't know if anything conceptual has changed. COVID-19, though, has um, it's made it unavoidable to accept the critical role of whistleblowers in dealing with the worst threat to, um, to our species in the last few centuries. 
Um, uh, if, if there's anything that I've picked up from working with pandemic whistleblowers, which has been um, our life government accountability project for the last um, few months, uh, it's that first that truth is the best medicine uh, against public health threats like the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and the second thing is that um, when um, political science trumps the scientific method, uh, it's a clear and present danger to public health. Um, we're dependent on whistleblowers probably um, more than any time in, in the last few decades. Uh, and um, our community has to rise to the challenge and give them more effective uh, protection because we need them more than ever before. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so that's exactly where my next question is going. So how, is, how are you responding and how's your organization responding to this whistleblowing uh, challenges now? Well, the, the first principle is solidarity. So we've been um, participating in all the, the global um, efforts that are organized with Whistleblowers International Network. And um, we joined the, uh, the global petition with, I guess it's over 100 groups now, that um, uh, 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 Bruno, Bruno Glesi from Spain and Priscilla Rebella from Italy and Suleth Dreyfus from Blueprint for Free Speech Reform organized. Uh, and that's kind of a foundation for our work. Um, GAP did a um, similar one in the United States that we have uh, 27 organizations on. And that kind of leads into um, our policy advocacy. Um, you know, when there's a crisis, a lot of times uh, it's an opportunity to and experiment or try new approaches or more creative than people would normally be open-minded about. And so we're, we're doing a very strong legislative push for the U.S. whistleblower laws, um, in per, at least in connection with the pandemic, if not more generally, to catch up to the European whistleblower laws. Um, uh, the U.S. was the pioneer in whistleblower rights, um, but but like Great Britain, um, you know, our pioneer rights have kind of become dinosaur rights. Uh, and uh, Europe's setting the pace now, and, and we're pushing very hard um, for our rights to be upgraded with additional teeth uh, to deal with this crisis. Uh, the other thing we're doing is representing pandemic whistleblowers. Um, we, we helped with Dr. Bright's case. He testified yesterday in Congress uh, how um, the Trump administration was... Um, using cronyism for the stimulus funds, uh, how it was um, ignoring all the early warnings that he and the other vaccine experts had made, um, and uh, how they were pressing very hard to flood um, the hot spots with um, malaria drugs that were not tested uh, and um, uh, hadn't been proven for their effectiveness and hadn't been checked for um, the side effects that they might create. And to me, Dr. Bright brought back horrible memories of the whistleblower who inspired me to come to the Government Accountability Project, Dr. Tony Morris in the 1980s, because he warned that um, President Ford's swine flu vaccine, which was being ushered out as a major political triumph, saving the country, um, hadn't been properly vetted. It was going to kill hundreds of people and paralyze thousands. And that's exactly what happened. Only this time, it'll be on a grossly larger scale. Um, and thanks to Dr. Bright and people like him, that may not happen. 
Um, but it's it's not just people like him. Um, uh, we're trying to take advantage of what happened with Captain Crozier to strengthen. Um, he's the whistleblower who um, lost his command because he informed his superiors at the Navy um, that his ship was a hot spot. They needed to do something about it. Um, uh, and somebody in the Navy leaked that to the media, so he lost his command. We're trying to improve the Military Whistleblower Protection Act around his case. Um, we're representing directly numerous whistleblowers. Um, Dr. Scott Allen, um, um, uh, HHS um, um, uh, expert, uh, public health expert, uh, has been blowing the whistle on um, how the elite immigrant detention centers um, are hotspots that are going to be threatening the rest of the country because of our bigotry against those people, or the prisons. Um, uh, we're representing ICE um, uh, whistleblowers who are concerned about the detention centers, meat slaughter plant whistleblowers uh, about the safety breakdowns there. Um, the one that upsets me probably the most recently is uh, uh, a TSA whistleblower, federal security director named Jay Brainerd. Uh, and he has exposed and brought to the U.S. agency uh, that TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, the people responsible for um, keeping the airports and air, air, uh, airlines safe, uh, that they were not delivering PPEs, PPEs, personal protective equipment, to their staff, and in fact, were ordering the federal security directors not to allow the TSA staff to hit wear masks or other PPEs. Um, um, they finally started allowing them to do it, but it's not until two weeks ago that they gave them authority to require personal protective equipment. And so what's the consequences of that? Um, well, when you get in line and show your ID um, or your passport, and um, if you've got germs on it and they touch it, um, they pass it along to everybody else behind you in line. That uh, The same thing happens when you go through the scanner and they pat you down or your luggage goes through the x-ray machine. They haven't given them any training. They haven't even told them what to do if a TSA person sees a symptomatic passenger. And what's happened is because of our government's um, bungling, mishandling, um, uh, it means that um, TSA has become a significant cause of spreading um, the coronavirus uh, uh, here in the United States. Uh, and I mean, it's not just a theory. Um, uh, the whistleblower checked out um, um, five different airports that were geographically scattered from each other uh, in areas where there hadn't been any pandemic problems, uh, and they all had simultaneous hotspot outbreaks, surges. Um, um, our government is becoming a severe threat to public health and safety, and we wouldn't even know about it if it weren't for whistleblowers. Um, so GAP's helping these folks, and we're going to help anybody else who can contribute that way. That's what we're here for. Yeah. So, Tom, exactly when you're answering, it's it's also, in a sense, how wide the work of GAP is, but also how wide the problem is, because, indeed, you're covering every field. What do you foresee or that will happen 
post-pandemic? Do you think there would be more, is there a more opening for more policy changes or, or what will happen to the ground or maybe public perception? Because one thing definitely that we're seeing, as you mentioned yourself, is that during this pandemic, we fully understand that a whistleblower is a frontier worker, are people in all these different places. So of course, I think it also generates a, a broader public understanding possibly of who whistleblowers are, which is traditionally one of the issues of, of, of even understanding. Of course, in the US, maybe this is slightly different since, as you mentioned, you have a very long history of, of longer protections. But, but you know, my core question, though, is uh, uh, what do you think will happen in post-pandemic as far as whistleblowing is concerned? I think it's an opportunity. We can't prophesize the future, but uh, if groups like... Um, Government Accountability Project, coalitions like Whistleblowers International Network are effective. Um, uh, this is an opportunity for much, much greater public solidarity with whistleblowers. Um, I mean, the, the role of whistleblowers always has been to be the public eyes and ears um, um, for responsible uh, authorities, the, the eyes and ears as witnesses. But with whistleblowers, it's really our audiences most significantly the public. Uh, and um, I think it's beyond any credible dispute um, that um, whistleblowers are, it's not just a matter of saving money or exposing government corruption or um, um, crooked politicians. Um, the truth is a matter of life and death now. Uh, and whistleblowers are the ones who we can trust to give us the truth when the government's lying to us. Uh, there's probably never been so much disinformation and propaganda as currently in the United States, at least. And I suspect it's that way in every country in the world. Uh, and uh, when the government's not playing it straight with us and our lives are on the line, we better have freedom of speech uh, so we can get the truth out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So moving, moving on to the EU directive, um, what has or what could be the impact of the EU directive uh, for, from your perspective, from where you are now, your organization, and in the States, if at all? Well, the, the EU directive takes freedom of speech to the next level. Uh, it's a landmark breakthrough um, for whistleblower rights. Um, because of the pandemic, it's a very interesting challenge. Uh, uh, there's a multi-year process uh, to implement the directive and customize it for each nation uh, uh, in the, um, the European Union. Uh, and we're just, just about to get started on that um, when uh, the pandemic is kind of putting everything on the shelf. Uh, but the laws are still the rights are still binding. They just haven't been really um, uh, specialized and applied um, in the best way to each country. So I think whether the EU directive has an impact on the pandemic will depend on um, how active the European Court of Human Rights is uh, in um, enforcing those um, rights during the interim, uh, during the interim period. I mean, I think for um, the whistleblower community, uh, for for WIN and uh, the coalition that got the directive passed, um, we still got some real work left to do. Uh, the directive is um, a landmark breakthrough in principle, but like any 
pioneering uh, um, advances and breakthroughs or rights, um, uh, a lot of things have to be fuzzy. And just to, to get the principle accepted, uh, you can't really spell everything out in all the details that are necessary to implement that principle effectively. Uh, and that happened with a few of the issues in the EU directive. Like um, reasonable belief is the key for, oh, so many rights in the directive. It's the key to whether or not you have protection against retaliation. Uh, reasonable belief is um, the standard for whether or not you can go public without waiting um, uh, up to nine months um, um, for internal um, uh, responses. Um, whether you have a reasonable belief triggers whether you have um, a firm shield against criminal and civil liability. Um, uh, but for some reason, that term wasn't defined in the directive. Um, uh, and it needs to be, um, uh, because reasonable belief, in my experience, can be all over the map from something that's almost impossible to achieve to something that's very uh, functional. Uh, or then there's duty speech. Um, duty speech is when people aren't engaging in dissent, but they're communicating the information shielded by whistleblower laws because they're just doing their jobs, um, honestly, uh, whether or not there's political pressure against them to cover things up or let some politically favored crook off the hook. Um, well, those people need protection against retaliation probably just as much or more than the people who are engaging in dissent. And um, the directive isn't, isn't specific about whether or not they're covered um, or whether they have to go into um, a special whistleblower office that could be a trap. Um, people who wrote the directive said, oh, of course we intended that to be covered, but we better pin it down uh, in the national laws, or it may not be. Same thing with burden of proof. The, um, the recital which describes the burden of proof, kind of the his legislative history or the explanation for the directive, uh, is like a dream come true for whistleblower rights. The text itself is so fuzzy, it could turn into a trap. Uh, where whistleblowers wouldn't have a realistic chance. Interim relief, uh, these cases gone for years, uh, and um, the, the key to making a difference, um, preventing unnecessary prolonged conflict, having a win-win resolution, uh, is um, interim relief. Uh, it, it means that the employers um, um, are losing until they make things right with the whistleblower. With no interim relief, they're winning until the case is over. And they can starve them out. It may not even matter if the whistleblower eventually wins. Um, well, the directive is very good about the principle, uh, but it doesn't get down to specifics, tangible controls or requirements in the national laws for how to do this. Um, so Whistleblowers International Network and all the folks we worked with, uh, yourself, Transparency International, Greenpeace, uh, Euro Cadre, um, um, we've got a lot of work to do over the next few years to make sure that the details aren't devilish. Exactly, exactly. So indeed, as you say, uh, the, how this will actually be further implemented as specified is, is where, where the, the, the crux of the matter is. Uh, well, Tom, thank you again for your very insightful answers and your uh, important uh, also uh, insights in terms of uh, what we can see next, uh, both with whistleblowing during COVID and after, as well as the EU directive. Talk to you later. Thank you.
you for listening to this episode of Whistleblowing Now and Then podcast created by WIM, the Whistleblowing International Network. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever you get your podcast. This podcast is hosted by me, Vigilenza Avazi, and my co-host, Anna Myers, the Executive Director of WIM. It is produced by Alice Smith. The theme music is by the Glasgow-based Roots Quartet and edited by Josh Brown. To learn more about WIM, you can follow us on Twitter at Whistleblowing or simply visit our website, whistleblowingnetwork.org. To support WIM's work, including this podcast, you can now donate via the button on our website. Thank you so much for listening.